Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, garden historian Russell Bowes talks about the horticultural history of the tea bag, from its origins in the foothills of the Himalayas right through to the modern tea bag. Um, I, the, the subject matter has obviously struck a chord. The whole of Bath seems to be here this afternoon. Um, who's had a cup of tea today? Who's had two cups of tea? Quite a few. Who's had three cups of tea? <laughs> Who's had four cups of tea? How many have you had? <laughs> About five. Toilets out of the door straight across. <laughs> um, were they cups or mugs? Mugs. Did you put the milk in first? No. Yes. Yes. Oh. Did you use a tea bag? Yes. Um, minus points. Um, we get through about 34 million cups of tea in this country every day. Um, so that's an average of eight for every man, woman, child and dog, apparently. Um, if you ask people to, um, if you ask um, people from abroad to list things which um, represent England, you will get a list of things like red pillar boxes, Trooping the Colour, Buckingham Palace, Wet Summers, and somewhere down the list, about number six or seven generally, people will say cream teas. But it's the tea constituent that we're interested in this afternoon. The British have an umbilical cord which has never been cut and through which tea flows constantly. It is curious to watch them in times of sudden horror, tragedy or disaster. The pulse stops apparently and nothing can be done and no move made until a nice cup of tea is quickly served. There is no question that it brings solace and does steady the mind. What a pity all countries are not so tea-conscious. World peace conferences would run more smoothly if a nice cup of tea, or indeed an urn, were made available at the proper times. Marlena Dietrich. Um, interesting that somebody not English managed to kind of tap into the kind of national psyche. Um, why it is this country's most popular drink is a very difficult and complicated question to answer. Um, but I will do my best to kind of summarise it over the next 45 minutes or so. What we are looking at, the hero of the hour, is this plant here. This is Camellia sinensis, um, a member of that vast and complicated family of camellias and azaleas and things like that. But it's only one particular subspecies, Camellia sinensis, which gives a, a proper cup of tea. Um, I did, in, um, for research purposes, try to make something approximating tea from the camellia in my next-door neighbour's front garden. Not only did I get a very strange look when I um, explained to them what I wanted some leaves from it for, but it tasted absolutely disgusting and is not to be re recommended. So it's camellia sinensis that we're looking for. Um, it is an incredibly productive plant. 
plant, it gives a, a completely new crop every five to six weeks. Um, and it grows over an incredibly wide climatic um, uh, um, zones from central China all the way through to Indi India and East Africa. Just a few leaves are necessary to make a drink, um, and the leaves can actually be reused. It's light, which makes it easy to transport. And the drink itself is very easily prepared, but allows for what anthropologists call the love of human elaboration, i.e. The, the, the serving of tea can be um, elaborated. We have an innate love of play and ceremony as human beings. Um, it's extremely safe to drink. Many people think it has, has health-giving qualities. It makes the um, drinker feel stimulated. Um, and it's not intoxicating. That's a very um, important point. It can be drunk constantly at any time of the day, throughout the day, without any harmful side effects. Although it does have a tendency to make you want to go to the toilet if you drink too much of it. Um, well, there are various theories about how the first cup of tea um, was actually made. And what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of slides is some fragments of some Georgian wallpaper, um, which unfortunately aren't available um, in the online version of this talk. So those listening in podcast land will just have to bear with me for a second. Um, um, 18th century Chinese wallpaper in the Chinese Chippendale bedroom at Saltram House in Devon. Could we have some lights off? Yeah. It's, um... There will now be a short interval while we investigate the intricacies of the lighting system. <laughs> Press it the other way. That, that'll do. Yeah, that's fine. I think we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> um, nobody knows where the tea plant originated from, but it's likely to have been somewhere in the damp and misty foothills of the Himalayas. Um, it was um, apparently the Emperor Sheng Nung um, who drank the first cup of tea, a story we'll come to um, afterwards. Um, but it, it apparently, his reign dates from about 2730 BC, so it was quite a long time ago. He was a scholar and a herbalist and was apparently sitting beneath a tree while one of his servants boiled a pot of water in order to make it fit for him to drink. There was a sudden gust of wind... Um, and some of the leaves fell off the tree and went into the pot, which stained the water a kind of pale green colour, and hence the first cup of tea was served. Whether that is true or not is, is debatable, but it's a very nice story. Um, what we're looking here at is um, um, the, the tea growing in the fields here. Um, there are many authentic references to tea in literature, but none of them predate 350 AD. So it was a long period before anything about tea got written down. Even then, um, there's great um, confusion as to whether people were actually talking about Camellia sinensis, because remember, these are prelinean classification days. Um, people used individual words for their favourite plant, um, and the words would 
um, differ from person to person. Whatever it was called, um, it certainly originated in the, the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, by 300 AD, it had already spread through most of dynastic China. Um, by about 780 AD, it was very firmly established in the intricacies of court life. Um, the first specific references um, are in a book by the Chinese philosopher Lu Ti, um, which covers the cultivation of the plant and the accepted methods of preparing it and storing it. It spread through the Chinese Buddhist monastery system um, and as such was an exalted drink. Its, um, its consumption was only for the, um, the priest cl class and, of course, royalty. The Indians, of course, have a very different story um, about how the first cup of tea was actually made. It, apparently, um, the, the Buddhist priest Bohidihama, I think I've pronounced that correctly, undertook a seven-year contemplation without sleep of all the teachings of Buddha. By year four, he was beginning to feel somewhat exhausted, obviously, and was staggering along a mountain path one day um, when he clutched at the branch of a tree um, when he staggered. Some of the leaves came off in his hand, and as a completely natural response, he put his hand to his mouth, and he began to chew the leaves. So he didn't actually drink it. He ate it. Um, certainly the Tibetan peoples didn't consume tea as a drink. Um, where are we? Um, they didn't consume it as a drink. They ate it rather like a kind of boiled-up, mushy kind of stew. It was pounded in a pestle and mortar and had various disgusting things added to it, like rancid yak butter and things like that. And then it was dried out and rolled into balls, which were left to dry in the sun, which were then reconstituted in bowls of hot water um, as and when needed. Um, so it was rather like those kind of fat balls that you put out for the birds in the winter. must have been fairly disgusting, I, I would have thought, not like the, the kind of the tea that we drink today. Um, but it was thought to have health um, benefits and it made people feel more alert. And it's also now known that there are um, minerals in tea which help as an antioxidant and they help the body absorb other vitamins and minerals and also vitamin C. So it was a very important um, dietary addition to people who were living in areas where there weren't very many kind of fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables um, about. And this is our Chinese emperor. This is um, Sheng Nung. A um, little bit hairy about the face, as you can see. Um, but as I said, he is thought to have introduced tea to the world through the, um, the, the Buddhist monastery system. Um, by the 5th century AD, um, tea had become very widespread, mainly along the area, um, along the, the, the Yangtze River. Because tea is so easy to transport when it is dried, it obviously was an important crop um, for, for trading. And the Tibetan peoples began to trade with the, the Chinese um, and the Mongol people, and tea began to pass along what became known as the Silk Road, one of the most important trading routes out of the, um, the Orient and across the Himalayas and into, into the West. Um, it began to travel along the Silk Road in compressed blocks, um, once it had been dried, it could be pressed together with weights or in um, a press. 
and it could also be used as an ornament. The bricks of tea were carved and pressed into different shapes, and they began to be used as currency as well as a foodstuff. And obviously, as with most things, the further away from its point of origin it gets, the more valuable it became. So you could actually trade with your block of tea. You could exchange it and use it for money instead of cold, hard cash. Um, tea is of a cold nature and may be used in cases of blockage or stoppage of the bowels. When its flavour is at its coldest, it is most suitable as a drink. If one is generally moderate or feeling hot or warm, given to melancholy, suffering from aching of the brain, smarting of the eyes, troubled in the forelimbs or afflicted in the joints, one may take tea four, four or five times a day. Its liquor is like the sweetest dew from heaven. So by the middle of the 12th century, we have a trade in blocks of tea coming out of China um, into Central Asia along the Silk Road. As late as the 1930s, it was written, the Mongol people make a kind of soup from powdered brick tea, which they boil with water, salt and fat. Then they strain it and mix it with milk, butter and roasted oatmeal. No Tibetan drinks less than 15 to 20 cups a day, and some even 70 or 80. So you've got quite a long way to go, sir, with your five over there. I would imagine that if you drunk 70 or 80 cups a day, you would spend quite a lot of time getting down off your yak quite quickly and running into the bushes. Um, and if these are the foothills of the Himalayas, I imagine it might be quite nippy as well. Um, so it was an important um, addition to people's nutrition. But it was in one of the successive waves of Chinese influence on Japan that tea really took its first step to becoming um, a world-conquering drink. Has anybody here um, been through the Japanese tea ceremony? A couple of people here. It takes an awful long time, doesn't it? By the, it usually has to be done on your knees, and it's in a very formal atmosphere. And by the time the first pot is actually poured out, one is generally gasping for it, I find. Um, tea probably arrived in Japan at about 500 um, AD, as I said, in one of the successive waves of influence. Um, a Buddhist monk was apparently responsible for teaching the Japanese how to prepare it. And tea was soon incorporated into the very um, formal and ritualistic aspects of court life. Um, if you think about it, most drinks are prepared in one place and then stored in some kind of con container and transported to the place of um, serving. We put wine into a bottle, we put beer into a barrel, that kind of thing. But the, the pouring out of the liquid is very simple and very quick and only takes a, a second or two. Um, it gives very little chance for any kind of social interaction. The very human desire to drag out the process of serving your guests food and drink can be seen in our little rituals which still exist today, things like passing the port, decanting the wine. The preparation of tea allowed for considerable amounts of elaboration, um, and the Japanese, with their inherent love of formality and ceremony, turned the, the tea ceremony into a fine art. 
The host must approach the guests with every respect and conduct them to the tea room. If the host is a person without composure and imagination, if the tea and drinking utensils are of bad taste, and if the natural layout and planning of the trees and rocks in the tea garden are unpleasing, then it is as well to go straight back home. A tea gathering may not exceed two hours in length. However, if, if this time is exceeded in the course of discussions upon the teachings of Buddha or upon aesthetic matters, four hours is not considered objectionable. Um, it's very interesting. The, the tea ceremony is purely secular. There is no reference to any kind of deity of any kind, and it doesn't take place in the presence of a religious um, official. Yet because of its very heavy layers of formality, it achieves a kind of, I suppose one might call it a kind of quasi-religious feeling. Um, the making of tea in Japan was laid down in very strict guidelines. It had to be boiled in water from the right kind of spring, heated over the right kind of charcoal, brewed in the right kind of utensils, whisked with the right species of bamboo and served in the right kind of cup. Any deviation from these very heavily demarcated lines of formality could result in very serious loss of face for the host himself. It wasn't, of course, very long before this strange ceremony came to um, Western eyes. Um, here we have a view of the European factories at Canton, which were completely under the control of the Dutch East India Company, who had sole trading rights with the Orient so they were, of course, ideally placed to bring this strange new drink and all its associated customs back to the West. Unfortunately, we Europeans had very little idea of how to drink this, this new drink. It was brewed up, stored in a wooden cask, and then drawn off and heated up in, in tankards for individual customers. So by the time one got to the bottom of a very large cask of tea, it must have been you know, resembling that kind of odd Mongol soup. Um, the Dutch became the premier drinkers of tea in Europe, but because of its exorbitant price, it remained very much a preserve of the wealthy. It spread in fashionable and court circles from Holland down through France into Spain and reached Portugal. And it was the link with Portugal which eventually led to it becoming England's national drink. Um, on the 13th of May, 1662, Catherine of Braganza landed at Portsmouth on her way to London to become the wife of um, His Majesty Charles II, who had been tempted into marriage with the eldest daughter of King Juan IV of Portugal by the prospect of her very large dowry. She bought with her £50,000 in gold coins, um, money that Charles desperately needed to pay off debts which had been run up by the Commonwealth administration. Um, Catherine bought physical goods with her as well. She bought silks, she bought spices, and she also bought tea. Tea was the only item in the dowry which Catherine was allowed to keep for herself. A chest of tea was in her personal possession. Um, Catherine was Europe's first tea addict, and it was because the new Queen of England was addicted to her morning cup of tea that it began to circulate in um, fashionable circles. Um, where are we? 
We have here um, a 1740 painting um, by Nicholas Vercoje called A Tea Party. Um, you can see here um, people taking tea. The presence of the, the slop bowl in the middle, I think, is rather fun. Plus the tiny teapot. Um, the kettle was kept um, boiling at all times, and tea was brewed um, individually in individual teapots for people to take for the rest of the 17th century, the amount of tea coming into this country was incredibly small. Um, but Catherine had also bought with her trading rights, um, not only to, um, to Canton, but also such places as Bombay. And once these were part of the, the English crown's preserve, then we had a link with um, the, the, the Far East, which we would later exploit for our own. It was still extremely expensive. The average working family was earning 74 pence a week um, in modern money. Um, but a pound of tea was two guineas, which was an incredibly large amount. Um, so tea was very much the preserve of the wealthy few. The next century saw a change. Um, the rise for um, demanding tea during the early 18th century was, was phenomenal. And there are v it's very difficult to actually explain why. Um, countries such as France, where tea had briefly been popular in the 17th century, reverted back to being coffee drinkers. Um, in fact, several historians have noted that tea only really began to be popular in countries which didn't produce the, its own wine. So if it was a wine-producing company, people tended, for some reason, to prefer drinking coffee. But at this point, the Dutch East India Company, of course, still had the monopoly. There was, however, one completely um, illegitimate way of getting your hands on cheap tea if you couldn't afford to buy it from the grocer. Backy for the parson, letters for the spy. Watch the wall, my darling, while the gentlemen go by. And the gentlemen were, of course, England's extensive network of um, smugglers and tea runners. In fact, so much tea was smuggled into the country to evade the import duty that it was apparently impossible to sell tea legitimately in England in any town or city within 30 miles of the coast. Um, so if you look, think of a map of England and take off... 30 miles inland from, from the coast. You're only left with a very small area in, central, in the central Midlands where it was apparently possible for legitimate tea selling to be carried out because everybody else was getting theirs literally under the counter. And this Thomas Rowland's cartoon shows um, a smuggler's mole being fitted out um, with various items of contraband to take to people who are willing to run the risk of being associated with the smugglers. Um, a barrel of cognac underneath her stomacher, um, a, a, a jar of otter, otter of roses to make perfume um, snuggled, um, well, I suppose you could say up here, really. Um, and um, two bags of Japanese and old China tea um, hung around her, her waist, taking the, the place of the panniers underneath her, um, underneath her dress. 
Um, many thousands of people connived with the smugglers, and they became a kind of folk hero in this country. Smuggling was not pretty, though. It was incredibly brutal. Um, many hundreds of, of um, um, smugglers lost their lives in fights with the, the excise men. If anybody um, in the audience remembers um, the episodes of Paul Dark, where Ross goes down onto the beach to, um, to help the smugglers, th there was always an, a, a military presence around the coast. So smugglers took a terrible risk, but the rewards were there. More and more people were drinking tea and liking it and trying desperately to get hold of it, which is why the smugglers achieved um, such, um, uh, such, a, uh, uh, such a lot of money. Something had to give, and eventually it did. The Prime Minister, who was Pitt the Younger, decided to make a massive increase on the tax in window glass, um, a tax that would stay on the statute books um, until the mid-1880s. This enabled him to make a massive cut in the amount of tax which was being levied on tea. Um, so almost overnight, with tea not being taxed on import, the price suddenly dropped dramatically. The smugglers returned to their old business of you know, rum running and, and, and things like that. Tea began to be the drink of the people rather than the drink of the nobility. But what people had to fear now was not excessive taxation, but adulteration. Um, um, grocers would bulk out their supplies of tea with things like dried beech leaves um, or verdigris to make, it, uh, make up the weight. And, of course, these things had a resultant um, effect on the colour of the tea when it was brewed in your pot. So to disguise this, grocers began to add things like ferrous sulphate or even sheep dung to make the resultant brew look nice and brown in your pot. Um, we do th know at this point that milk and sugar was not yet being added, so it was being drunk in its kind of natural state, as it were. Um, there grew up a kind of subsidiary trade um, from the houses of the aristocracy, certainly in, certainly in London and in other principal cities around the country, of the housekeeper or the cook selling used tea leaves back to the grocer at the back door in, um, in exchange for a small consideration of money. The grocer would then take the tea leaves back to the shop, dry them again in his oven, and put them back into the barrel. So a lot of the time you were getting, you know, kind of third or fourth hand tea. But because you weren't used to it, you didn't know really what it should taste like in its pure form. So, so anything you got packaged up as tea, you more or less thought that was it. Um, and it was because... Um, of the disgusting taste of this constantly recycled tea going back to the grocer, into the teapot, back to the grocer, that people started to add milk to the tea to kind of round off some of the, the sharp edges and to disguise the, the bitter flavours. But of course, at this point, tea was still drunk in the main by men. Because it was expensive for private people to buy, it was served more often than not in the tea and coffee houses in places like London. Men enjoyed the social freedom to go out and meet their friends and do business in the inns and um, in the coffee houses. And of course, many men, probably in response to wifely nagging, took home packets of tea at the end of the business day for their wife. Um, so it was only in 
within the confines of the private house that a woman could be seen really drinking tea. Um, so it began to become a very feminine drink. It's interesting that the great three hot drinks of the world, tea, coffee and chocolate, all arrived in this country within 20 years of each other. Um, and for a very long time there was a tussle going on as to which of the three drinks would become England's favourite. Um, fortunately, kind of tea won the day, although it was still served in what were called coffee houses. So in order to keep your um, precious um, stocks of tea away from the prying fingers of your servants, who would not only drink it for, your, for themselves, but then sell it back to your grocer at the back door, came um, the, the, the tea caddy, a decorative item <coughs> excuse me, made of fruit wood or something like tulip wood, um, highly decorative and, most importantly, lockable. And the lady of the household would carry the key to the tea caddy um, around her waist on a chatelaine, which is a long chain attached to her belt. And the tea caddy would usually be divided into three sections. There would be um, a metal inner um, to stop the tea um, getting damp, and at each end there would be a small porcelain or glass bowl um, so that the individual tea could be blended to her particular taste by the lady of the household. And every tea caddy would come with its own individual spoon made of something like ebony or horn. Um, it began to make its way down through the social classes, um, and it began to replace gin as the preferred drink of the working classes. Quite why, it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to work out. Um, but it seems to have been a lot to do with the state of, certainly London's, hygiene and its water supply. The very fact that the water for tea had to be boiled before the drink could be consumed meant that it was actually physically safe to drink. There was um, rampant cholera, rampant disease in lots of cities around the country because of the contaminated water supply. So the fact that you had to boiled water to make your cup of tea made it you know, safe to drink. Um, the growth of the tea trade um, in this country received a fillip um, in 1706, um, where have we gone, with uh, the arrival on the London scene of this chap, Mr Thomas Twining, um, who started what he called the Golden Lion Coffee House just off the northern end of the Strand, up by where it joins with Fleet Street. Twining had connections with the East India Company, so was able to get hold of his tea relatively cheap. Um, and he opened his, co his coffee house in Devereux Court, which is one street away um, from uh, the Strand. The tea shop was very successful. He was essentially London's first um, retail grocer. He marketed very cleverly. Um, he marketed his coffee house as a place where aristocratic ladies could meet um, and sit, you know, in some comfort at a table and chairs with their friends, discussing the fashions and novelties of the day while his staff put together the household order of dry goods, things like cocoa and sugar and flour and things like that. So his coffee house became very popular with the women of London. So he was able to buy the surrounding properties, and he was also able to buy the property which backed onto his, which 
fronted onto the strand. So there was a whole block through, if you, if you follow me, um, which was eventually um, Tom's coffee house. Um, his granddaughter took over in 1778 when they achieved the frontage on London's fashionable strand, where the famous Chinese, um, Twining's Chinaman can still be seen today in what is London's oldest retail outlet. Twining's was given a royal charter by um, Queen Anne in 1711 as purveyor of tea to the royal household, and that warrant has been um, um, renewed by every English monarch since. So tea was very much stamped with royal approval. Now, going into Twining's Tea Shop is like stepping back into Georgian London. They are rather sniffy, however, about people taking photographs inside. Um, I kind of whipped out my camera and did my best to look discreet, but somebody saw me aiming my camera at, at a particular area of the shop, and I was escorted back into the Strand, um, which is why I just have the, the picture of the pediment over the door. You run terrible risks being a garden historian. Um, but we have the, the, the famous um, Twining's Chinaman and the Golden Lion um, as hearkening back to the, um, the original coffee shop. Now, we think of a tea party as being something you know, light, jolly and quite frivolous. Um, as I said, we think of something light and inconsequential, but it does have um, a rather darker side. Um, the New World was opening up, England's colonies in America. Um, the Dutch, needless to say, had been instrumental in opening up the trade routes. Um, under the terms of its charter, the East India Company was barred from exporting tea directly from England to the American colonies. Um, the teas were auctioned in London and shipped to America by London merchants, which was then taxed on arrival. So it was taxed on its arrival in England by the Dutch East India Company. It was then offloaded onto, a sh onto the dock and then reloaded probably onto the same ship which meant that it attracted export duty from England. And then on its arrival in the colonies, it was then um, retaxed again. So it was carrying something like 300% tax when it arrived in the colonies. And as everything in the colonies was um, very heavily taxed, the taxing of tea was really, to the colonists, the final straw. Um, do not suffer yourself to sip the accursed stuff. For if you do, the devil will immediately enter into your soul and you will become a traitor to your country, said the colonists. Americans of all classes resist to, um, unite to resist the tea tax. Tensions began to run high because everything was taxed on its arrival in the colonies. Just the, the taxing again of tea was, for a lot of people, the final straw. On the 28th of November 1773, HMS Dartmouth, laden completely with tea, arrived at Castle William, which is the nearest port to Boston, Massachusetts. The townspeople held a mass meeting, and it was decided that the cargo of tea would not be allowed to be offloaded unless the governor arranged for the waiving of the tax which was due on it. Um, to complicate matters, the um, Dartmouth sister ship, Eleanor, then arrived in port behind um, the Dartmouth, also laden down with tea. 
things began to get rather sticky and the harbour was sealed. The, um, the, the ships could not go back out to sea. They could not unload. They just sat there for three and a half weeks while an impasse was reached. Um, it wasn't until the 16th of December that a mass meeting was held to decide how to resolve the situation. Um, the governor refused to reopen the port and let the ships go. Then Alexander Hodgson, who was the first mate of the Dartmouth, records in the ship's logbook. Between six and seven o'clock this evening came down to the wharf a body of about a thousand people, among them a number dressed and whooping like native Indians. They came on board the ship and after warning myself and the customs house officer to get out of the way, I think that's been rather cleaned up in the translation, to get out of the way, they unlaid the hatches and went down to the hold where there were 800 whole and 340 half chests of tea which they hoisted up on deck which were cut to pieces and hove all overboard where it was damaged in the harbour and lost. The Boston Tea Party, as it became known, lasted some three and a half hours. Every last ounce of tea which was aboard the two ships was lost in the salt water of the harbour and spoiled. Back in London, Parliament was completely outraged um, and an act was passed to close the port of Boston permanently until financial reparations had been made. The colonists organised resistance to this, not surprisingly, and the first shots in what became the American War of Independence were literally fired over Boston Harbour. What discontents, what dire events from trifling things proceed, a little tea thrown in the sea has thousands caused to bleed. And it, it's a theory that the Boston Tea Party may be one of the reasons why the American people today represent themselves publicly as drinkers of coffee rather than drinkers of tea. They do actually get through as much tea in private as we do in this country, but to all intents and purposes, publicly they are a coffee-drinking nation. Um, the tossing of the, the tea into the sea came to be seen as an example of British taxation and arrogance without representation. So the American people publicly consume coffee now. Now, let's... We obviously have an ongoing technical problem. We'll miss that one. Um, okay, that's fine. That's... Um, coming into focus now. This is a little bit of a dark slide um, for which my apologies and I'm also having problems focusing it. I think that's about as sharp as we're going to get. That's it. Um, Tea became, uh, became, in this country, the drink um, of the assembly room um, as well as the public gardens, quite um, um, appropriately for Bath, with the, the assembly rooms not far away. Um, tea began to be one of the very few drinks which could be consumed properly in public, certainly when there were ladies and young people present. Um, the great... Um, um, early Georgian pleasure gardens of South London, Vauxhall, Ranelagh and Cremorne, down by the, the small villages of Chelsea, um, were the place for um, fashionable Georgian Londoners to see and be seen. And as I said, to partake of uh, various drinks as well. And this gave us a new word in that... The, um, the total sum for any alcoholic liquors consumed by a party of people at Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens was listed down the left-hand side of the page of paper. 
the, their bill for food was totaled up in the middle, and the teetotal was given on the right-hand side, which gives us the English word teetotal, meaning to abstain from alcoholic drink, because the tea and the alcohol were kept separate on separate sides of the actual individual invoice. And it wasn't long before tea drinking in this country became just as fraught socially as it had been in Japan. This very famous cartoon from Punch shows an unwitting Frenchman, shown here in the green jacket, who has failed to realise that the English signal to one's hostess that one has partaken enough of tea is to lay one's teaspoon diagonally across the rim of the cup. He insists on returning the teaspoon, once he's stirred his tea, to the saucer, which is the indication for, I would like another cup, please. So the poor Frenchman unwittingly falls foul of all the social conventions of drinking tea, indicates apparently to his hostess that he wishes for another cup, with unfortunate results. I think he has to make a, a rather hasty access, uh, um, e exit from the tea table to the... Um, amusement, no doubt, of the young lady with the fan. And it was at social situations that tea began to break down social barriers. Um, you would not be permitted, if you were a young gentleman, to address a lady unless you had already been introduced, unless you opened the conversation with asking about a cup of tea. Would she like one? Would you prefer um, a cup or a bowl? Would Madam care to take milk with her tea? or perhaps a little sugar, or perhaps a slice of the new exotic lemon. So it became a way of breaking down social barriers between people. Um, tea was very much on a social high. Um, and with the um, arrival of the tea clippers began to come back to this country in a fresher and fresher state. Now, we moved our tea production away from China. Um, the English were looking to avoid having to pay the um, excise duty to the Chinese and the Japanese. So we began to look for places owned by England and therefore coloured pink on the map, which would grow tea, which meant that we could have our own supply. So tea bushes were literally smuggled out of, um, out of Canton and sent to southeast Africa, um, sorry, southeast India, where it was found that the climatic conditions very much suited the tea plant, much as it had done in the Himalayas. Um, and of course, with the tea plantations under English control, it meant that we were no longer liable to pay tax to the Chinese people. And our withdrawing from the Chinese tea trade caused a whole series of uprisings, um, economic incidents, and would eventually lead to the opium wars between this country and, and China. Um, but the arrival on the scene of the very famous tea clipper um, transformed the way that tea was brought back to this country. I hate to have to admit that the tea clipper was of an American design rather than an English one, but they were called clippers because they were relatively long um, in relation to their width, which meant that once they were fully sailed, and a fully sailed tea clipper could carry in excess of two acres of canvas. Um, they clipped through the waves at a very much higher speed than a normal ship with a broader, um, broader bow. 
The um, clipper men were the elite of the English Merchant Navy. To be a clipper man was a mark of considerable esteem. And a system grew up called stowage, whereby, in addition to the tea and the hold, depending upon your level of rank as a clipperman, you were allowed to bring back a certain poundage of non-tea goods which you would be able to bring back into this country and then sell on the dockside in order to bump up your salary. So the lower seamen obviously were allowed less weight than the, 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 um, the staff or the, the captain, but it, it rose on a kind of sliding scale. But most people took advantage of the fact that the clippers were bringing tea back to this country by bringing associated items, things like china teacups and saucers and samovars and... and um, slop bowls and things like that. So once the tea clippers arrived, the, um, all the bits and pieces were coming with them, which led to a great expansion in oriental ceramics coming in to this country. And the greatest tea clipper, in fact, the, uh, the only one remaining, is currently being repaired down in dry dock at Greenwich. This is obviously the Cutty Sark, um, set light to, apparently, by a couple of chaps who mistakenly thought that the Cutty Sark was a slave trading ship. Um, but it, it was fortunate that most of the... Um, the original material had already been removed from the ship um, in order to be preserved. So there was only the very, the very, very basic hull. Fortunately, it was saved. Um, I remember watching it with tears streaming down my face on the news. Um, but by 2012 next year, the, the, um, the last remaining tea clipper will be back there for us to enjoy. And an associated and somewhat unexpected sideline began to appear around the tea clippers because it was a mark of some importance to be the first ship back with the new crop that year. What became known as the Great Tea Races began. The whole sideline of betting and gambling upon which ship would actually be the first to dock um, at any one given port in this country. Um, where are we? Um, there, there, was, there was a story of three clippers all built in the same Glasgow shipyard which set off from Bombay on the same tide. So skillfully were they sailed that they all managed to dock in Southampton within three quarters of an hour of each other. The most famous tea race in 1866 ended in an utter dead heat between the Ariel and the Taiping, who both set off from Bombay and arrived in Portsmouth, literally breasting the harbour wall neck and neck. Um, the clippers died off as a result of the opening of the Suez Canal in 1871 and the invention of the steamship. Um, the Victorians, of course gave very little um, thought to what was actually going on um, environmentally back in India, where huge swathes of the country were being turned um, into tea plantations. But we put, a, we put a, a certain Victorian spin on that with the temperance movement, which gained great ground in this country as a way of um, tempting people away from the pleasures of the gin palace and the, um, the, the, the ale house with the growth of the, the temperance movement. And it's from the temperance movement that we get that famous expression, um, the cup that, what is it, the cup that 
um, cheers, but does not inebriate. I have to say that having looked at some of the, the programmes and posters and banners of temperance meetings, they do seem rather dull affairs. Um, you know, a lot of these kind of hymns and cups of teas and, and, and improving tracts and things like that. I mean, it, a lot of them, I think, would have been vastly improved by the odd glass of sherry or a quick gin and tonic or something like that. Um, but, you know, tea, tea was the, the drink that cheers but, but doesn't inebriate. Um, it was still very much um, a feminine drink in the opening years of the 20th century when again there was an unexpected spin-off um, it was unthinkable for any aristocratic lady to be seen during the day wearing the same dress um, certainly one would never wear the same frock at luncheon as one was intending to wear at dinner um, and in order to kill what were called those dead hours, um, afternoon tea started to become very fashionable, as did a whole new area of fashion, the tea gown. Um, one could take off one's constricting you know, luncheon dress and slip into something slightly more comfortable. Um, here we have a 1901 um, fashion magazine, Le Mode. Um, this is Madame Rejane, apparently. Um, you might just be able to see that through the, the sheer cotton or silk of the, um, the tea gown, the lady is still having to wear her, her corset. So quite how much more comfortable they were is debatable. Um, but you can imagine you know, a, a scene in Edwardian England at Downton Abbey or somewhere like that with the lady of the house taking tea in her boudoir with members of the family um, and her friends and all you know, throwing off their restraining um, afternoon dresses and being able to lounge around in a bit of frou-frou. Um, it was um, in about 19... Let's see where we are. Lost my... Um, 19... Sorry, 1864, that the manageress of a London branch of the Aerated Bread Company um, persuaded her directors to allow her to offer food and afternoon refreshment to some of her best customers. It was an immediate success, and the rest of the Aerated Bread Company shop chain followed suit. It had given us the birth of the ABC Tea Rooms, and they were joined in 1894 by the famous Lion's Nippy. Um, it's unlikely, however, that the Nippy would have countenanced such goings-on as we see here in 1914 at the Argentinian and Brazilian Dancing Salon in central London. I think this is probably a publicity shot with the tea table set up very obviously on the dance floor. I think one false twirl from that tangoing lady there, and there will be you know, tea and biscuits all over the dance floor, um, which the, the famous Nippy would not be countenancing, um, and um, neither would Len be holding up his paddle with seven on it, I don't think. Um, so with the arrival of the ABC Tea Rooms and the famous Lions Corner Houses, um, tea took another step towards becoming um, a, a, a country-conquering drink. Because it had not been possible for respectable women 
pre-First World War to enter you know, a tavern or an inn or even a hotel to take or afternoon um, refreshment. The arrival of dedicated tea shops meant that suddenly it was possible for Mama and the children on a trip to town to take refreshment in the middle of the afternoon. And it also gave added cachet to the, um, the career of catering. Being a nippy was one of the few jobs in catering that a girl of any pretensions to respectability could aspire to. We all hear you know, horror stories of people becoming engaged to innkeepers' daughters or publicans' daughters. There was none of that um, um, social sneering associated with the lion's nippy because that was respectable. Um, in 1904, Messrs. Horniman's started selling packets of tea rather than loose tea to their customers. And by 1907, they had a network of some 15,000 outlets. Packets of tea had first been introduced in 1826. 1904, however, saw the birth of that scourge of modern tea drinkers, um, the tea bag. Again, um, an American invention. Um, a New York tea dealer, Mr. Thomas Sullivan, sent out some samples of a new blend of tea in small silk bags through the post to his customers. One elderly lady got completely the wrong idea, and rather than clipping the string, which held the bag together at the top and pouring the tea directly into the teapot, she just dropped the whole thing into the pot and the tea bag was born. There was some confusion initially when the lady wrote back to Mr. Sullivan saying how wonderfully efficient and clean it had made the tea-making process. Um, tea bags were very, very slow to catch on in this country. Certainly, I remember my grandparents never countenancing tea bags at all. Um, nasty, messy things, they were called. Uh, there had to be advertising campaigns teaching people how to use a tea bag. I mean, it seems so bizarre to us today, but tea had, at a stroke, with that invention, become a drink of convenience rather than a drink of ceremony. Tea tastes so much better made this modern way, says Lady Barnett, and I find Tetley tea bags so very economical. What I think is funny about this picture is the fact that proudly displayed at the front is a box of 18 tea bags. Wouldn't really get very, very far today, would it, a box of 18 tea bags? Um, by um, 1970, tea bags still only accounted for something like 10% of the UK market. In 1869, a chap called Arthur Brooke started a company called Brooke Bond. There was never a Mr. Bond, just a Mr. Brooke, but it was called Brooke Bond in order to give it some kind of cachet. The kind of alliterative nature of the words Brooke Bond made it sound more important. To suggest that a particular um, blend of their tea would aid digestion, they called this particular blend pregest, and it was shortened over the coming decades to PG. Um, and PG was very heavily marketed um, with the PG chip, oh, PG 
tips chimps. Try saying that with, with bad. Um, yeah, and for many, for many years, um, PG sponsored the Chimps Tea Party at London Zoo. Um, and then, of course, when television advertising came along, it was, you know, literally a godsend. Um, the most famous of the PG chimps was undoubtedly Rosie Lee, which, who you can see here, who featured in many of their most famous commercials right up until the, the um, very early 1980s. There was a secret that PG never let on in that Rosie didn't actually like tea. Um, Rosie preferred a spot of sherry. Um, so when you look at those old um, PG ch chips... I can't say it. You know what I mean. Um, when you look at those old adverts, what is actually being poured out of the teapot by the chimps is not actually tea. It's warmed up sherry. Um, it's warmed up to make it look steaming. Um, and this kind of the, the advertising carried on until, as I said, the very early 1980s, when when the animal rights um, movement started to clamp down on it. Um, about 95% of the tea that's drunk in this country now is what you might call the kind of popular supermarket. It blends. Four um, percent um, is speciality blend tea. Things like Darjeeling, Assam, Salon, that kind of thing. Um, and the remaining one percent is made up of what used to be called fruit and herbal teas, but now under an, an EU directive, they're not permitted to be called herbal tea because they don't actually contain any the Camellia sinensis. So they have to be called herbal and fruit infusions. Um, but they only make up kind of 1%. The British have an umbilical cord which has never been cut and through which tea flows constantly. It is curious to watch them in times of sudden horror, tragedy or disaster. The pulse stops apparently and nothing can be done and no move made until a nice cup of tea is quickly served. There is no question that it brings solace and does steady the mind. What a pity that all countries are not so tea-conscious. World, tea world peace conferences would run more smoothly if a nice cup of tea, or indeed an urn, were made available at the appropriate times. I hope Mr Cameron is listening. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>